So what I'd like to do is remind you that this year is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Can you believe that? 500 years since Martin Luther penned his thesis, put it on the doors of the Church of Wittenberg. And if you were to look today at the landscape, the Reformation is being undone. Evangelicals are compromising, and the Reformation is, is being undone. So the uh, so Catholic Church in the days of Martin Luther... That church then is not the church we have today in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is an evolving church. It's a changing church. In fact, I like to describe it as a chameleon because if you go to Latin America or some other place in the world, the Catholic Church will be different. And here in America, it has more evangelical bent than it does, let's say, you go to some other countries. So you have to be aware of that. In fact, when you talk to a Roman Catholic, you really have to ask them what they believe because each one has a different way of approaching their particular faith. Now, what has happened over the last 500 years, and we can even go back to the times of the apostles uh, when the Catholic Church claimed that they were the true church. And we're going to show you that that was not the case. But what has happened over the years is they've had a change in power, change in authority. They've changed their doctrine. I'm getting a little hang of the, the PowerPoint there. There we go. They've changed the gospel message, and they have changed their purpose. This is a lot that's happened. Now, I'll give you a quick kind of overview of the, the history of the Catholic Church. So, um, and I want to separate. The true church is not the Catholic Church. So I want to make sure that's very clear. So in the ancient church, this would be from the time of the apostles to the first 600 years. All right. What we saw was Scripture was proclaimed. And again, we're doing some general numbers. Then eventually, after about 600 A.D., to up to the time of Reformation, you have this medieval church age. And that's when you see Scripture not being proclaimed. Then Scripture is hidden by this point, And it really was hidden from people. If you were living in England, you didn't have your English Bible until Wycliffe and others came along and translated it into English. Then the Reformation happened, and Scripture was unleashed on the world. Translations were made, and people proclaimed it, and doctrine came back to the forefront. People got saved. It was amazing. And then the church, you know, was going through pretty healthily, if I could say that. And again, this is general church history. And then Scriptures are restored. But what we're seeing today is that the modern church is again slipping away again. We're seeing how the Bible is not proclaimed. The people are abandoning the Scriptures. And so history always, as you know, repeats itself. So that's just a general picture. Now we're going to zoom in on some of these uh, to where you can get some more detail on the Catholic Church. All right, so let's start off with the New Testament church. Let's go back to the time of the apostles. And as we know, they were persecuted, and they were persecuted by Rome. You know, I'll give you some examples of that. Every single apostle except for John who was put on the island of Patmos was persecuted and killed. Peter, Paul, mentioned John, the early church. That was an expectation that if you became a follower of Jesus Christ, martyrdom was a real reality. That's very important to understand. This is who the true church was. And Rome was a political, secular power like Nero and others who persecuted and hunted down Christians because they didn't have faith in their gods. Very, very important. Now, the apostate church was corrupted by political power. Sorry that we're a little uh, dipped on the end there. Okay, so let me talk about how we're going to trace church history, and it's this political and religious combination. This is pretty fascinating. So we have the rise of Emperor Constantine. Everyone heard of Emperor Constantine? Okay. Famous emperor. He has this vision, so-called vision, this dream, that he sees Christ, 
and he ends up creating this special shield with this emblem on there, and then he puts that emblem on all the shields, and then he goes in and he conquers Rome, about 306, 337. And again, Christ himself, he claims in a dream to take the cross into the battle as a standard. Now, he was victorious. He took over Rome, and within one year, he produces this edict of Milan, and it ended persecution. Now, if you were a believer at that time, this is great news. But with that freedom came some interesting problems. So also there was a restitution of possessions uh, from the Diocletian persecution. So some of the Christians lost their property and money. Some of them actually got it back, which was pretty amazing. Okay, so that just shows you how significant this event was. Now, within a few years to show you that by this time, apostasy has already infiltrated the church has infiltrated the political powers. Arianism, that's the belief that Christ is not fully God. Uh, He's a created being. Uh, That would be like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses have different flavors of that. Uh, And so we have son had a beginning. He was created by the Father. He's not of the same substance of the Father. It's a medium through which God made creation. Christ is the highest ranking of all created beings. And Christ is subject to change because he's not God. So this, this was right here happening at the time of Constantine. Very important you understand that. So the, the visible church was becoming an apostate church, a corrupted church. Now, it's not to say there weren't true believers who really understood the truth. There were. But you have to remember that the, there's many people all over the Roman Empire, and many of them were believing these lies. And controversy switched back and forth between the eastern part of the world and the western part of the world and, and so forth. And so Arianism was a real, real problem. Now, when I mentioned this dream that Constantine had, he created this special symbol. And there's the, uh, it's kind of like an X, okay, that's the chi, and then there was this row. And that was the symbol that represented Constantine's empire. Now, I want you to see this because this is very important to understand the Roman church today. They have that symbol everywhere. Here's uh, Pope Francis. You see right there at the top, he's got it there. It's also, oops, I went too far too fast. So this symbol goes all the way back to Emperor Constantine. And the reason I show you this is to show you that Rome makes the claim to be a power, a political power besides a religious power. And we're going to see the rise of this body called the Catholic Church take over and do some significant things politically as well. All right, so this is kind of interesting. So in the years to follow, I'm going to walk you through the next couple hundred years very quickly, you're going to find out that they had many councils. And these councils did some good for the general church. They defined who Jesus Christ was. They actually did some good jobs in fighting off some heresies. But you need to understand something very significant. Every single church council that was called these first several hundred years was not called by some bishop or some pope or some religious leader. It was convened and called for by the current reigning emperor. All right? The reason that's significant is that Roman Empire looked at Christianity as a religious political. Okay? So they controlled the message because they wanted everyone in the empire to be on the same page. So these councils were convened because they saw their empire starting to break up with different messages of Christianity. And to be a successful empire, you have to have a single religion. And so Emperor Constantine did this first one. And we'll go through these pretty quickly, but there was many bishops 
some church, you know, several church leaders, and this is where they affirm the deity of Christ. Now, we owe some debt of gratitude for this articulation of this, but the true believers already knew this. This was just a formal process convened by Rome to make sure everyone in the empire knew this truth, and that if you didn't, you were uh, considered a heretic. Uh, Julian the Apostate, which was a nephew of Constantine, Uh, In 361, 363, he rejected this. So even within the Roman Empire, Constantine and some family relatives, they embraced Arianism. So it wasn't a pure uh, pure doctrine throughout the empire. And so so when Roman Catholic Church makes claim to popes at this time, there weren't really popes at this time. There were multiple bishops, and there was no single pope, even though they'll make a claim to that. Now, what else happened? So let's move forward a few more years. Constantinople 381. Here we have another emperor calling the council. And this is where they affirm the person and nature of the Holy Spirit and affirm the Trinity. This results in the Nicene Creed, which some still use that today. But did you know only the Eastern bishops attended? So this wasn't a true church getting together. Again, it's the Roman Empire calling these religious meetings. And they affirmed Jesus Christ was fully God against Arius and fully man against Apollinarius. And they were also fighting for position. This is very important. So what's happening is you're seeing a rise of a political religious fight. Where is going to be our home center? Who's going to be the power, the center of power? So you have Alexandria, Constantinople, or Rome. These are three places vying for supreme power in the empire. All right, let's go a little bit forward to Ephesus 431. Another, again, called by an emperor. And this is where they affirm the two natures of Jesus Christ, that he's undivided. So that's where we get fully God, fully man. And uh, only 60 bishops present. They condemned these Nestorians, Pelagianism, and they denied millennialism. You hold to the thousand-year reign of Christ, right? Uh, The thousand-year reign of Christ? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just so you know, that is not a well-held belief among many today, among the Reformed, like, Southern Baptists and things like that. So, so as far back as 431, they were denying the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. That's pretty amazing. So you're starting to see how the so-called Catholic Church is already apostate, denying things. Yes, they're affirming some, some important things about the Trinity, but there's these other trends of false doctrine. Now, we get to Chalcedon 451, and uh, ca- called by the emperor, confession of faith to, to unite the empire. So you see this mixture of religion and politics. In Jesus Christ, true de- deity, and so this is a big deal, against Arius and full humanity against Polynarius, indivisibly united in the one person against Nestorius without being confused. So it takes this empire 250 years to get the Trinity right. And uh, pretty amazing. This is also the last time that East and West were unified. Soon after, you would then have the Eastern Church, which is the Greek Orthodox Church. That's a good example of that. And then you have Rome, and that's a good example. So now this is significant. About this time, Rome falls, and the Germanic chiefs come in and they put their puppet king in the seat of the Roman Empire. And it's at this time that really the Roman Catholic Church begins to show itself. And it starts to assume political power. So it's no longer just these bishops getting around uh, teaching and stuff. They are now moving into the political realm. This is a significant event. And this is why they assume like that Constantinople, uh, Constantine's little symbol there on his shield. 
All right, so let's go forward. So Constantinople II in 553, he's called by Emperor uh, Justinian. He installs bishops. So here's a political power. This would be equivalent to the governor of this state, Indiana, going to this church and saying, we don't want Pastor Mike, we want this guy. You're out and someone else is new in. That's what Rome was doing politically. They were installing the church leaders. In fact, some of these bishops were not liked, and they needed police protection uh, because they would be killed by the locals. So you understand that this, is, this has nothing to do with the true church. This is a political, religious uh, empire that's being built here. And at this time, the council affirmed the perpetual virginity of Mary. So you, again, you're starting to see this doctrines, these new, new traditions, new doctrines being introduced. 553. Constantinople III in 680 to 681, he comes along and he says, uh, he called by the Eastern Emperor, so another emperor calls the council. (laughs) And uh, he condemned, this is interesting, so one of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church is that the Pope speaks ex cathedra. When he speaks ex cathedra, he's speaking infallibly, he's speaking without air. And so the church then, the Roman Catholic Church and all those who are in it, must follow that. So a, church, a pope could never be a heretic because once you're a pope, you're always right. And when, especially when you're sitting in the, and speaking ex cathedra. This particular pope, Pope Honorius, was actually condemned as a heretic. So if you go back and you look at history, he was a real pope and he was condemned as a heretic. So this is a real problem uh, for Roman Catholics. All right, so let's go a little bit further. So Nicaea 2 comes along in 787, and this is the idea of, you've probably seen this on the Orthodox side, where they have lots of paintings and icons. And this whole debate of, are we allowed to look at a picture of Jesus, and can we worship that picture of Jesus, and can we venerate that picture of Jesus and call that worship? And so it was a big, big debate. And so the Roman side said, no, you can't really do this. But the Eastern side says, yes, you can do this. Now today, the Roman Catholic Church uses these terms, veneration and adoration. And they try to say, well, adoration's for God. Veneration is, is just showing respect. But let me just clear this up for you. It's in the end, it's the same thing, all right? So if someone's venerating an image or venerating a statue, that's the same thing as worship. They'll try to throw some technicalities at you and say, well, as I look at this image and I adore this image, that adoring goes through the image and up to God. But in the end, that's idolatry, and that's forbidden in the Scriptures. So big debate back then, and like I said, in Roman Catholic Church today permits veneration. Those numbers come right from the Catholic uh, catechism of the Catholic Church. Very important. All right, and then 1054 the big split happens, east and west split. So Rome now is its own political power, which now today is the Roman Catholic Church. Constantinople, the east, that represents the Orthodox Church that you see out there. In fact, anyone familiar with Hank Hanegraaff, uh, the Bible answer man? I don't know if you know him. He, for the longest time, was uh, out there uh, defending the Scriptures. He has left Christianity, and he has become an Orthodox believer. So he is apostatized. Uh, uh, which is really scary. So at this point, in 1054, Rome claims universal authority. So now the Roman Catholic Church is starting to really gather up power. Okay, now 
Let's talk about how the Catholic Church over the years has enslaved others. And this particular enslavement was through politics, through political power. So the first one is the papacy. This is how the papacy arose, okay? So first, who is the pope today, all right? This is very frightening. So if you were to go over to Rome and ask what are the titles of the pope, these are the titles that they have accumulated over the years. First, he's considered the universal bishop prior to Gregory the Great around, uh, yeah, I don't have the date on that, Servus Savorum Dei, or Dei, and that's the servant of servants of God. You're going to start to notice a trend with these titles. That was in 591 they made that claim. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. That is a title for the present-day pope. That's a title reserved for Christ and Christ alone. 1281. Divine Majesty, Husband of the Church, Prince of the Apostles, Key of the whole universe, the pastor and physician possessed of all power both in heaven and earth. These are titles reserved to God and the Son and no other. Yet Roman Catholic Pope makes these claims today, 1513. Some more titles, the monarch of Christendom, vice God, Lord God the Pope, 1635. Master of the world, the universal father, vice regent of the Most High. And uh, on a side note, you ever wonder why they have that weird-looking kind of white hat? Have you seen one of those? Okay. Well, this is a good example of how Rome over the years has embraced paganism and brings in their rites and their rituals and just assumes them. That how, that's how they expand their empire. They go and they find a way to reach a pagan country and absorb them into the Roman Catholic system. And when they do that, they, take the, they tend to take their rituals and things like that. So this actual fish hat goes back to the Babylonians, and it's the shape of a fish head that bore the words keeper of the bridge. It was a symbolic of the bridge between man and Satan. And this handle was adopted by the Roman emperors who used the Latin title Pontifex Maximus, which means major keeper of the bridge between man and Satan. And that same title was used later by the bishop of Rome, and that's why the pope today is called the pontiff, which is referencing back to this bridge between the bridge keeper between man and Satan. These are, these are incredible claims. And, of course, he is a political power, and he's the sovereign of the state of the city of Vatican. So hopefully you're seeing already how this, the Catholic Church is an evolving entity, changing and reshaping over time, assuming power and, and so forth. Okay, so some notable history. At times there were multiple popes. There wasn't always one single pope, and they were vying for power and wealth. Now there's this thing called simony. It was around 200 A.D. is when it started, and it went all the way up to the Reformation age. And the idea of simony was this. I could own a church, and I could sell the church like a franchise. And so what was going on was these priests were owning these churches, and, of course, they, the members of the community would come to the church because they were fearing hell. So they come there, they give their, their food, their money. That wealth would accumulate in the, the priest, and at some point the priest says, I'm ready to retire. So then he would go and get bids and sell the church to someone and take that money and use it for his retirement. This was simony, and this went on until the 16th century. The reason it ended is because Rome wanted control. 
When people can buy and sell churches without Rome's permission, then that's lack of control and lack of continuity. So Rome had to put an end to this practice. Ten, they own tens of billions of dollars, really don't know. They have property, art, relics, precious jewels, metals, cash, etc. And remember what Peter said? As we know, the Roman Catholic Church makes claim that Peter is the first pope. Peter said this, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. It's such a contrast. When you look at the book of Acts and the early church and you look today at the Roman Catholic Church, there's not any continuity whatsoever. It's a completely different entity. Okay, some significant popes. This is going to show you how they changed, again, with their political power and religious power. Callistus, 200, invoked Peter's authority. So this is the first time that they actually made the claim that we, as bishop of Rome, can make claim to Peter's being an apostle. So it wasn't always a doctrine. It didn't start till the 200s. And it was rejected at that time it was introduced. Damasus, in 378, receives from the emperor the title and office of Pontifex Maximus. We mentioned that earlier, that bridge. A title permanently retained by the popes. By the way, at that time, one of the popes had a rival and he had him murdered. So you're going to find out that the Roman Catholic Church has the same kind of political intrigues that you would have in every other secular power, murder and so forth. Leo I, he made the papacy the supreme sovereign within the church. And he made political alliances with even Attila the Hun. So this is when Rome began to get its political power. Gregory, in 590, was the groundwork for the papal state. So what was going on was the Roman Catholic Church was grabbing land and power. And as that got larger, they needed to create these various papal states so they could control the people. And it's also when they introduced the monastic life. Significant other popes, uh, donation of Constantine. This is really unbelievable. So in 750, this, uh, this piece of paper is found, and it supposedly was a claim by Constantine to, to say, I own this land and I give it to the church. That's what the piece of paper did. Well, it turned out, so, so what Rome did is they used this, doc, this document to go to various uh, lands and say, on behalf of the power of the pope, we take this land. It is ours. And that's how they got this huge land grab. It wasn't until the 15th century during the Reformation, uh, actually a little bit before the Reformation, that they discovered this was a fake. But by that time, the, the damage had been done. Huge land grab. Charlemagne was crowned Roman emperor by Pope Leo III. And this is where you get the idea of Holy Roman Empire. And this is when now you have a religious army being established. So now the church, Roman Catholic Church, has armed soldiers. In fact, listen to this. Your share, most holy father, he's talking to the present-day leader there of the Roman Catholic Church, is to support our army with hands up raised to God, as did Moses in ancient days, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified throughout the world. They're hearkening back to the days of Moses holding up his arm as uh, Israel defeated the enemies. Uh, and this is a complete misunderstanding of the text, and, but was used, again, to raise an army. And then in 1048, Leo the Nine, another army was raised and just got bigger. This also led ultimately to the Crusades. Uh, the College of Cardinals was established at this time as well. Okay, so what's going on next? Some other significant popes, 1059. This one, prohibited by lay investiture. It's always hard, hard to say that one. So here's what's going on here. 
This one, uh, this is very similar to, uh, back to what I was saying earlier, uh, a wealthy person in the community would install the leader of that church, and they controlled that leader. So Rome didn't control them. The wealthy person did. And Rome came along in 1059 and said, no more. We control those individuals. So this was finally prohibited in 1059. Cardinals were electing the pope now, so there's a little bit of check and balance there. And then you had multiple popes, multiple seats of power. You had this great papal schism. So it wasn't a pretty time during this 40 years. There were popes killing popes left and right. And uh, in that one time, there were three popes, one in Rome, one in Avignon, and one in Pisa. Eventually, Rome would win out in the end. And then you had more power to the rise of the council. So that's where Trent came along, Vatican II, etc., Okay, so the apostate church enslaved others not only politically, but they enslaved them through false doctrine. So let me give you some examples here. Infant baptism introduced in 431 A.D. The mass reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ introduced in 500 A.D. The perpetual virginity of Mary introduced in 553 A.D. Then in 1000 A.D., the Mass was mandatory. If you don't attend Mass, you are committing a mortal sin. So if you bump into a Catholic who's always going to church every day, it's because of this doctrine. And that is just enslavement. Indulgences, the idea that you could give money to the church and your sins can be forgiven or your time in purgatory can be reduced was introduced in 1090 A.D., the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the body, uh, that the wafer was converted into the literal body and blood and divinity soul of Christ, 1215 A.D. And the concept of the treasure of the church, the treasure of merit, was established in 1343. This is the idea. So Christ dies on the cross, raised from the dead. His perfect life created this treasury of merit, which then out of that treasury of merit could be applied, if the church so wanted to, to someone, and their sins could be forgiven. Well, then they said, not only does the treasury consist of Christ's works, but good, good Catholics and their works, those that were proclaimed saints later, their treasure could go in there too. And then the church could dispense this whoever they wanted to. So do you see this connection now of the rise of false doctrines, the rise of political power? Purgatory was introduced in 1438. And the idea here is that when you die, you don't go directly to heaven. You go to a place of purifying because when you die, you're most likely still in a state of sin. And so you need a place to be purified because Christ's work on the cross was insufficient to purify you. So you have to go to purgatory. Now this is a real doctrine. And, and I should say this. When you talk to a Catholic, it's very important you find out what they believe and what they know because every Catholic is embracing certain doctrines and it's different with each one. But one of the things that becomes very clear, and we'll talk more about this in the church service, is that the Catholic, Roman Catholic has no assurance. There is no confidence whatsoever that when they die, they're going to end up in hell, in purgatory. There's a lot of doubt there. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that, no, with Christ, his perfect, finished work assures us of our salvation and that when we die, we go right into the presence of God. This whole system, as you're seeing, is set up to enslave an individual to make sure they have no confidence, no assurance, and that they stay in the system. The concept of sacred tradition, 1545, is this. 
Okay, you have Scripture, which we hold as the supreme authority. We are underneath the Scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church comes along and says, we have Scripture here, and now we're going to put tradition here. We're going to make them equal. And if they contradict one another, tradition will rule over Scripture. The Apocrypha, seven additional books, was officially added in 1546. The Immaculate Conception of Mary, as late as 1854, was added. The Assumption of Mary, that she didn't die, she was just kind of taken up like Enoch, uh, 1950. Now, what are some significant events leading to the Reformation? This is kind of fascinating. Now, watch this. The apostate church persecutes others. John said this in uh, 1836. Jesus answered to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is a key verse to remember because if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, all you see is fighting with the sword and conquering, taking land, taking wealth, taking souls. Matthew 26, 51 says this, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who shall take up the sword shall perish by the sword. The sword has nothing to do, the physical sword that kills, has no part and place in the true church. Now, amongst the Catholics, there is unbelievable political intrigue and murder. One-third of the popes elected between 872 and 1012 died in suspicious circumstances. In other words, people were killing off popes in order to rise up in power. John VIII bludgeoned to death by his own entourage. Stephen VI strangled. Leo V murdered by his successor, Sergius III. John X suffocated. And Stephen VIII was mutilated, a fate shared by the Greek anti-pope, John XVI, who, unfortunately for him, did not die even after he removed his eyes, nose, lips, tongues, and hands. And this is the kind of torture that is just, it's brutal. And so you need to understand that the Catholic Church owns this history. You can't change this history. This has nothing to do with the G- Jesus Christ and his, uh, his mission and his commission. Now, that's just within the Catholic Church. Let's talk about attacks on nations and people groups. In the 17th Council of Toledo, 694, all the Jews living in Visigoth, Spain, were declared slaves. So the Roman Catholic Church said, all you Jews, you're slaves. Their possessions were confiscated. Judaism was outlawed. And all the Jewish children over the age of seven were taken from their home and raised as Christians. This has nothing to do with the gospel. This is all about political power and control. The Crusades, another uh, terrible thing that the Catholic Church did, went out and basically conquered. The first Inquisition actually goes back to 1233, Pope Gregory IX, and it was used to basically kill the enemies of the Catholic Church. Now, in the Spanish Inquisition, which is the more noble one who persecuted Galileo and so forth, that started in 1479. And you might recognize those names, Ferdinand and Isabella. They're the same ones who sent Columbus to America. So their hands are washed in this blood. 341,000 people were punished in the Spanish Inquisition. Over 32,000 were burned to death. 
Jews left Spain or they had to be baptized. And there were about 200,000 of them that lived in Spain. This was a major disruptive persecution. Uh, They had burned and banned books. And by the way, this burning and banning of books went on as late as 1966. Now they've stopped updating the list. And the last execution under the Inquisition was as late as 1826. So this wasn't just a medieval times. This carried all its way into 1826. Now, I think it's really important to, to recognize Psalm 119, 140. Your word is very pure, and therefore your servant loves it. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there were those true believers who loved God's word and were willing to lay down their lives for the purity of the gospel. And so we see the Catholic Church persecuting the true church because the true church is responding. And I think this is really important as we come close to, in October, to the 500th anniversary. We have to remember, and we'll talk more about this in the second service, we have the blood of the martyrs as our history. For their sacrifice, the true gospel carried forward. And each of you and I are a benefit of that. And so here you and I are today facing the Roman Catholic Church. And there are some today saying the Roman Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we're going to see in the second service, when we compare the two gospels, it's not. It's a false gospel. And so the true church does respond. John Wycliffe in 1330 takes the Latin Vulgate and translates it into English, giving the English people the Bible for the first time. He rejected papal control, church hierarchy, indulgences, and denied the transubstantiation doctrine. As I said, he translated into English. After his death, the Roman Catholic Church came along and condemned him for heresy. They found his body, dug it up, burned it, and scattered his ashes on the Swift River. This is a direct attack on the work of John Wycliffe. The true church responds. There's this wonderful lady called Anne of Bohemia. Now, she was uh, a woman who was, uh, her marriage was arranged for political purposes, but she was a true believer in the gospel of Christ. Uh, She helped the poor. She helped orphans, widows. She protected John Wycliffe. She shared the gospel and influenced the Hussites. She ultimately died of the plague. But to show you how one individual, that simple profession of the gospel and being faithful to proclaim it resulted in Jan Hus or John Hus who believed the gospel and that whole area embracing the gospel and that became the Bohemian and Moravian movement. Uh, ultimately John Hus, one of the famous reformers, uh, excommunicated in prison, burned at the stake because he simply preached against the sins of the clergy. The Hussite movement then you know, continued to grow which was very significant Another individual is, uh, I think it's uh, Ulrich Zwingli. That's the Swiss Reform, and uh, that was in 1484. This is, again, right before the Reformation time. Uh, Died in a religious war. He was a soldier, Battle of Capel. His body was hacked, and his body was disgraced. He was an Anabaptist, and he rejected infant baptism. Now, I do need to make a little bit of a note. Some of the reformers like Calvin and Luther, there's many things that we accept, but they were still coming out of the Catholic Church, and so they embraced some doctrines that we today would not. So it's very important when someone asks you, are you a Calvinist? Or you say, well, where Calvin agrees with the Bible, yes, I'm a Calvin. And where Calvin disagrees with the Bible, then I'm not a Calvin, uh, and so forth. So very important that we don't get caught up in labeling ourselves, per se, that we're aware of the differences, but ultimately we say our supreme authority is the Bible, and that's what we stand upon. 
Some other individuals, which is really fascinating, is Hugh Latimer of 1485 in England. He was burned at the stake under Bloody Mary. So Mary came to the throne of England. She reversed the Protestant movement that was going on. She was a a very violent uh, Roman Catholic and really persecuted the church, uh, the true church. And Latimer had a friend of him. Both of them were out there doing the work of the gospel. And they eventually got caught, brought to to the stakes to be burned. And this is what he said. Be a good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England. And he's referring to him burning up as a candle. As I trust shall never be put out. This is the, the courage that I know only by God's grace and trust in, in Jesus Christ and, and commitment to God's word is this possible to do. Another example of individuals being attacked is Frederick the Wise. Now, this guy was a German prince, and he was Catholic in the beginning, very, but very sympathetic to Martin Luther and supported him with wealth and protection. And, uh, but in the end, it looked like he f- truly converted and left Roman Catholicism. So God uses a variety of people to ensure that his word, his gospel goes forth. William Tyndale, 1494, translated the Bible into English. Neat little story about him. So he gets done with his translation from the Greek and Hebrew. This was a significant uh, activity he accomplished, but he wasn't happy with his translation. Lo and behold, a, a priest disguised as a buyer shows up and says, I want to buy your books. Well, it turned out Tyndale knew it was a priest and said, sure, go ahead. I'll take your money. <laughs> you can take my books I want to get rid of. All the books were burned. And then next thing you know, a Tyndale's printing new books. And this priest who bought these was like, where'd all these books come from? I thought we burned them all. Tyndale had taken the money to create a better translation. In fact, that translation is the basis and foundation for the King James RSV ESV. Significant, his work that he did. Ultimately, he was strangled. His body was burned. And his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So he was doing this during Bloody Mary's reign. And sure enough, Mary's reign ended. And that's when eventually King James came into power and we had the King James Bible. So God answered that prayer. Pretty neat. Uh, Another individual, uh, John Hooper, 1495. He was the forerunner of the Puritans. He rejected transubstantiation. Before a crowd of 7,000, he remained constant in the flames for three quarters of an hour, 45 minutes, while the wind and the green wood prevented the fire from swiftly ending his life. It was an agonizing demise. Another individual, John Rogers, he uh, wrote uh, the Bible or translated the Bible. It was called the Matthews Bible based on Tyndale and Coverdale. He was burned at the stake by Bloody Mary before his wife and his nine children, including his nursing child, bidding them to trust in the Lord and that God would plentiful provide for them. See, when I read these stories of these believers who just wanted the word of God in their own language and to see them before their own family be killed, And then you see, as you'll see later in the second service, you'll see quotes by pastors saying, let's embrace Roman Catholicism. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's ignoring these incredible sacrifices from Jesus Christ all the way through. Now, the power of the gospel. This is awesome. So Martin Luther, as you know, has a crisis of faith. But before Martin Luther became uh, the famous Martin Luther... He uh, had some problems. Uh, first, he joined the, the minister, ministry. He became a monk because he was afraid in a thunderstorm. And he vowed to St. Anna that if I live, I will become a priest, become a monk. 
But as a monk, he had access to the Word of God, and he studied it, and God opened up his eyes to the truth of justification. He saw the abuses of indulgences, and then he penned his famous 95 Thesis in October, and he had a trial, as you know, and he confronted the Roman Catholics. And this is really interesting. So by the time Martin Luther pens the 95 Thesis, the Gutenberg Press had been in operation for about, a, about, a hundred, about 50, 60 years, and, or about 100 years. And at that point, about 20 million volumes had printed. So this was the perfect time, a perfect time when he printed, when he put this document that people took it and were able to reproduce it and spread it all over Europe. So it just goes to show you how God is sovereign and also how Christians take advantage of technology. <laughs> okay, some other things, books were banned and burned. I mentioned that earlier. So these are ways in which the Roman Catholic Church over the years has silenced the truth. They ban the books, they burn them, they silence by threats, they confiscate the property, they try people as heretics, they jail them, or they kill them. These things are still true today, just different forms, different ways. Then, then in the, during the Reformation, this is when the Jesuits were created. They were the counter-Reformation. It was an academic body created by the Catholic Church to deal with the Calvins, the Luthers, the Zwinglis. Uh, the Council of Trent was there to address these issues. The Spanish Inquisition was a tool used by them to hunt down these true Christians. Pope Paul III used them in 1542, 1547, 1562. I mean, this was a very violent time. Now, the Catholic Church is here today because of its past, because of this conquering, political, this, uh, the stealing of the land, stealing of the money. That is how they've become who they are today. And so the question you have to ask is, where does the Roman Catholic Church stand today? And we're going to talk about some of these in the next service. But there's a hundred anathemas. Anathemas is a curse. Damned be to hell is what it literally means. And it's still condemning many biblical truths we hold. And we'll cover that in the next service with the gospel. There's no change in any of the unbiblical traditions, doctrines, and dogmas of the Catholic Church. And they're still involved politically as ambassadors to every nation. They still have an ongoing priesthood of abuse and scandal. A report just came out this year, uh, not more than a couple months ago, and they have come to the conclusion that they don't have a pedophile problem in the Catholic Church. They have a homosexual problem. Priests are taking advantage of young men who've passed puberty. This is a real issue. They're still an apostate church. They're still propagating a false gospel of works plus faith, which we'll address in the church service. Billions in bondage, they need evangelizing. So the question is, do you believe evangelicals such as ourselves and Catholics have any ground for unity? Now, I haven't covered all their doctrines yet, but you can see enough there that there's no ground. There's no unity whatsoever. And what a Catholic needs more than anything is not for you to argue doctrine, but for you to present Jesus Christ, the once and perfected work. Focus on that. And if you are Catholic, which we don't have any here today, when will you look at the Scriptures and abandon the false gospel for the true gospel? And this is really important. You need your Roman Catholic friend or family member to just open up the Scriptures and read it. As a former Catholic myself, I never read the Bible. And that's when I started reading the Bible. That's when I got saved. Uh, with some additional help. Now, I have some additional resources uh, to help you. In fact, one of them, probably the best one that I have as we wrap things up, is the book Preparing for Eternity. You know, part of just sharing and witnessing is being equipped. And uh, what Mike Jenrin has done is written a book where he shares the gospel of Christ in contrast to the gospel of Rome. So not only you reaffirm the gospel and get equipped in that respect, but you know what to say and how to say it 
in this resource. Plus, at the back, there's all these questions uh, about Roman Catholicism that you can ask Catholics and then give them the biblical response. So this is a wonderful resource. And then there's a, we've got several tracks there as well, which can be great conversation starters. And this particular one will go through uh, the history of the Roman Catholic Church where those traditions were added. And it actually shows you, and I have a slide in next service, where it walks you through the Gospel of Rome. The thing that remember is with a Roman Catholic is that more often than not, you're going to know more about their doctrines than they will. And so you've got to be patient and remember that they're caught up in ignorance. They haven't been taught. I wasn't taught the gospel. And so be patient. Share the gospel. Pray with them. Give them things to read. Invite them over and start that conversation. And, uh, and again, we'll talk more about some other techniques, but one of the things, is, again, is what are you trusting in is a great question for your salvation. What do, you ho- what, do you, what do you expect to happen after you die? Another great question. And then who is Jesus Christ? Have them talk that, and then you open the door with that question to walk through the true person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to leave this up, and I'm just going to take a moment to close in prayer because it's 1030. Hope I timed that pretty good. And uh, again, that's a lot of information, but you'll be able to download at proclaimingthegospel.org today's date, year, month, and day. So let me go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that history sometimes uh, can seem like history, distant and far away. But to understand the past is to truly understand the present. And we can see very clearly through just even this small uh, overview of how the Roman Catholic Church who they are today has this wicked past. They are not the true church. And it's so important, Lord, that each of us are faithful that when we meet a Roman Catholic, that we stay focused on the gospel, aware of this history, and then be able to share the hope and the reason for our confidence and assurance of our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.